Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we talked about a collection of Jesus' teaching. And if we could run a line through those teachings, we could come to a couple questions. What do you do when you hear God's Word? What do you do with the Word that has been given to you? Do you believe it? Because if you do believe it, you'll be blessed. But if you reject it, condemnation is around the corner. I'm afraid that's all the recap time we really have because today's section is hefty. It's not really one I could divide up into multiple episodes. It just wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't flow as well. So we got to dive right in, starting with verse 37. Quote, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. End quote. When Jesus was teaching the crowds, he was invited to have dinner at a Pharisee's house. It's a private gathering, but we'll find out later on in these verses that there are other religious leaders that are there. They're Pharisees, they're lawyers. Right off the bat, Jesus surprises this Pharisee, the host, because every Pharisee and every lawyer present would have washed their hands before they ate. And as they're sizing Jesus up, they would have just assumed that since he is a Jewish teacher, he would do the same thing they're doing. They weren't washing their hands because it was flu season. They were washing their hands because it was their custom. Hand washing does pop up a couple times in the Old Testament. First up, Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 20. Quote, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. End quote. So when were they commanded to wash their hands and feet? They were commanded to wash their hands and feet whenever they drew near to the tent of meeting or when they were going to make an offering so that they wouldn't die. The Lord was really clear at communication. But this doesn't talk about eating dinner. One other place it comes up. Leviticus 15, verse 11, quote, Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, end quote. Now, for context, Leviticus 15 is all about the bodily discharges. A man's bodily discharge obviously has nothing to do with what's happening in Luke chapter 11. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory, so that we can just leave it at that. There are other washings and bathings that happen in the Levitical process of someone moving from being ritually unclean to being ritually clean. But that is so that they can rejoin the covenant community of Israel, not so that they can have dinner. So here's the point I'm making. Hand washing before dinner is not in God's law. You will not find it anywhere. While Jesus skipping washing his hands may not have made Mary very happy with her son, it was not a sin, even if the Pharisees may have viewed it as though it were a sin. So where do they get this tradition? 
It is in a set of Jewish writings and teachings called the Talmud. Now, the problem with this is that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had elevated these teachings and customs of man as though they were God-given. We've discussed this before, so I'm not going to labor it too much. But the effects of these traditions were rooted in self-righteousness. Even if they were originally well-intended, the observance of extra rules can create a delusion where the adherents of those rules believe themselves to be elevated above anyone who does not do like they do. And you know where that goes? Self-righteousness every single time. Essentially, the mindset is, I do all of these things, therefore I am good. Actually, I do them better than you. So that means I am better than you. That's the mindset. Over and over in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus wanting none of it. He could not care less about the traditions of man. He is all about the law of God, which reigns over anything man could ever come up with. On this occasion, Jesus is going to use this as a teaching opportunity. Picking back up in verse 39, quote, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You Fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. End quote. Now, it is possible I am reading too much into this, because none of my commentaries said anything about what I'm about to say. If we looked back at verse 37, when Luke is transitioning from the public teaching of Jesus to this more private scene, he says the words, while Jesus was speaking. Now, that the Pharisee is causing this fuss over hand-washing, even before the dinner rolls are brought out, Luke writes, And the Lord said to him. Now, Jesus is Lord. Jesus and Lord are appropriate ways of describing him. But considering how this conversation is about to really split the divide between the ways of men, even highly religious men, and the ways of God, which are holy and righteous, I wonder if Luke is giving us a message here. By calling Jesus Lord, by switching the words that he uses, to me at least, it shows that Luke is highlighting the authority of Jesus over the religious leaders, and by doing so, also highlights the authority of God's word over the traditions of man. We're not talking about two good options here. We're talking about that which is good and that which is not. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is very direct as he points out to the Pharisees that they're just missing the point. They care so much about show, outward appearance, and what people see, but their way of life and religious order has not grown godly fruit within them. Actually, it is growing greed and wickedness. When I was an undergrad, my school had this prayer and meditation room in the student center. It was dark. I had these little fountains of running water, and it was so quiet. Truly, a very peaceful place to take a quick nap between lunch and early afternoon class. Across the hall from this room was a restroom. One day, I went into that restroom, and there were several guys from the Middle East who were washing their face, their hands, the arms, the feet in that sink. And I think that they could tell that I was caught off guard. My face doesn't hide much because they quickly offered the information that they were washing themselves before prayer. It was a Muslim purification ritual. So being the president of two separate campus ministries at the time, you know that I thought of exactly what I should say like three or four years after this happened. But that's that's not the point. But look, their issue was so similar to the Pharisees. 
They wanted to be clean before God. It wasn't their hands or their feet or their face that was the main issue. For the Pharisees before God and for the Muslims as they were trying to find God, really, it was the heart that is the issue. And you can't wash the heart. You can't just take it out and run it under some water in the sink and be clean. You need to be cleansed by God. Jesus asked these men, he said, Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Truly, in fact, God who made the outside of our bodies also made the inside. And we know it is the heart that he cares about the most. The Lord desires his people to do good as an overflow from a godly heart seeking to honor him. Good things so that other people will think you're good is now emptied of its goodness. But if it's an overflow, if God has created this fountain of good within you, and that fountain grows and grows and spills over into good deeds and good words and good actions, that's what honors God, not empty goodness. We can say what we want, we can do what we want, but what truly matters, if any of that is real or if it's just for show. Jesus, in the voice of a prophet, is about to raise three woes against the Pharisees. Verse 42, quote, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. End quote. So, though they're good at tithing, it is simply for show. Other people see them giving what they give. How do we know it's for show? Because Jesus said that their first woe was that they neglect justice and the love of God. Christians and Jews alike recognize the depravity that sin has brought into the world. So it should be no surprise to either group that injustice is widespread. There are countless situations that we can easily say, this ought not be so. This is not right. There are countless groups and individuals who are oppressed and mistreated at the hands of sinful men. The doctrine of sin should make this an obvious truth. A sad truth, but an obvious one. One thing that is true about most of those oppressed groups and individuals is that they have very little to offer those who are not oppressed or not mistreated. How do we treat those who can offer us nothing? How should we treat those who can offer us nothing in return? When we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't this how Jesus defined what it means to be a neighbor? To help the helpless that cannot offer a thing in return to give to those who cannot repay. To love rules and religion but not God and people is truly a miserable way to live. And it kind of explains why these Pharisees always seem so grumpy. But I want to point you back to a conversation Jesus had with a Pharisee. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 36. Quote, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This woe that Jesus has pronounced on the Pharisees reveal that though they have kept many rules and laws, they have missed the greatest commandment, and the second which is like it. They have not loved their God with all that they are, and they have not loved their neighbor as themselves. 
Now, it seems cliche to put it this way, but I can think of no other words. Let us make sure we are keeping the main thing the main thing. Are we pursuing a relationship with a holy, good, righteous, faithful, loving God, or are we just pursuing religion that allows us to feel better than other people? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves, or are we finding ways to compete with our neighbor, to compare with our neighbor? It seems to me that the Pharisees lost their way in how they prioritized their walk and their faith, and as a result, their journey took an ugly, ugly turn. Sure, they did the religious deed of tithing well, but if they didn't love their God and they didn't love their neighbor, what was that for? So what are our priorities? Are we following the same path as the Pharisees did, the path of self-worship and self-righteousness? Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. End quote. My description of the first woe overlaps with the second. You see, in the first woe, they did not love God nor did they love their neighbor. The result is a sense of self worship, which is really what the second woe is. They may not love God or other people, but they sure do love themselves. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're not supposed to hate yourself. The command is to love your neighbor as yourself, which implies you do actually have self-love. But that's a self-love that's in its proper order, proper priority. If you do not love God above all things, you will not love yourself in a healthy way. Listen, self-loathing is not a marker of godliness. You are an image-bearer of God, a beloved child of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. To self-loathe in some ways is a lack of belief in what God has said, specifically what God has said about you. You're just not meant to be the center of the solar system. You do not have the strength or the ability to bear the weight of worship. You never were meant to. Listen, we can see how that leads to terrible places in our own day. We can see the emotional and psychological effects of trying to bear the weight of worship by simply looking to Hollywood or maybe to D.C. and look at the calamities and the depravity that we see there. But back to the Pharisees. They love their popularity. They'd love it being all about them. They would never express these words, but they wanted worship from the people. Now let us evaluate our own hearts. Do we desire to give worship to God or to receive worship from others? Which is more important to us? And let us not be too quick to give the church answers here. Let us do the work of evaluation. The second woe was all about their unhealthy and idolatrous love for themselves. The Pharisees have one last woe to endure. Verse 44, quote, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. End quote. This woe may not seem as obvious, but I want to direct your attention to Numbers chapter 19, verse 16. Quote, Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword, or who died naturally, or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days, end quote. One of the things that could make someone unclean and unable to participate with the religious life of the people of Israel was to touch a grave. But I mean, that's no big deal, right? I mean, graves have grave markers. You can see the markers. You can avoid the graves. Should be pretty easy to not become unclean in this way. But look at what Jesus is specifically calling the Pharisees. He says they are unmarked graves. 
They are a hidden danger to the people. They lead anyone who hears them or knows them astray. They are filled with self-righteousness and self-worship, but do not have the love for God or neighbor that is the true marker of knowing God. The Pharisees are living traps. They appear to be safe and holy, but they are full of sin and have found themselves outside God's covenant community. There is a call in these woes to be the real deal, to love God, to love people genuinely, authentically. Through that love, we can become a blessing and help others, not a trap. Now listen, this is going to be very direct, but would you rather your life to be described as a blessing for other people or as a trap for other people? A blessing, right? We don't want to be a trap. So pursue God, love Him, and He will make you the blessing. So the three woes to the Pharisees. They did not love their God, nor did they love their neighbor. They love themselves in an idolatrous way. Since they're fakes, they are traps to the people. We've still got nine verses left, but we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Verse 45, quote, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, end quote. The lawyers weren't even in Jesus' sight. They weren't who he was specifically talking to or about. But it seems as though there's a bit of conviction going on here. The words Jesus is speaking is bringing on some offense for them. Maybe the words Jesus is saying out here to the Pharisees hit a little too close to home for the lawyers. I mean, I don't know what the lawyer was looking for here. An apology, maybe? I don't know how he saw this playing out, but what I would be willing to bet is that if you're a position of self-worship, you might just live in an epic level of delusion so that you could picture this ending in a apology. But I can tell you, Jesus was not about to apologize for telling the truth in a just manner. He redirects his aim to the lawyers and gives them three woes. Verse 46, quote, And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The first woe Jesus pronounces on the lawyers is simply that they are hypocrites. They give people all of these rules to follow, yet they live as lazy bums, unwilling to do what they tell others to do. They simply are not practicing what they preach, and they're not even trying to practice what they preach, which is the real issue here. No preacher, other than Jesus himself, perfectly practices what they preach. If I preach to you my standard, it wouldn't help you. Your goal has to be to be more like Christ, not to be like Matt, who awkwardly just referred to himself in the third person and should probably edit this out, but likes to leave these little awkward moments in. We must preach Christ in His standard, a standard that I will stumble on and I will mess up every step of the way. But look, are we aiming to practice what we preach? Jesus is not rebuking the scribes because they fall short. Jesus is not rebuking the scribes because they've made mistakes. Jesus is not rebuking the scribes or the lawyers for just missing the mark. He's rebuking them because they're not even trying to practice what they preach. They are true hypocrites. And we're going to see their hypocrisy continues. Verse 47, quote, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of prophets whom your fathers killed. 
So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. End quote. Whew. Working off this theme of hypocrisy, the scribes love to honor the prophets with tombs, as though they were on the same team of the prophets. When Jesus says the reality is that the scribes walked the earth in the days of the prophets as their fathers did, they would have killed the prophets too. The sinfulness of man has always hated the goodness that is found in the prophet's message because it comes from God. Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah. Now, Genesis records Abel's murder, and Second Chronicles records the murder of Zechariah. How the Hebrew Bible is structured, really, First and Second Chronicles is the same book, but how the Hebrew Bible is structured, Abel was the first prophet, and Zechariah would have chronologically been the last. So from A for Abel to Z for Zechariah and the rest of the alphabet in between, they hated the prophets. For the prophets called out their sin as Jesus is doing now. They are hypocrites. For they act as though they love the prophets when they hate the one that is before them in this very moment, and they would have hated the rest too. Jesus then says, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. He is letting them know that judgment is coming. Judgment for everyone from Abel to Zechariah. Many things. This refers to the Romans destroying the city of Jerusalem. That's going to happen around 70 A.D. And when that happens, they're going to destroy the city, the temple. Uh, There's this uh, Jewish historian named Josephus. He estimates that 1.1 million Jews are massacred, and roughly another 100,000 or so are taken off as slaves. This is truly a ferocious judgment, but I want you to think about what it's judgment for. All of the prophets, every last one that was killed or persecuted. And God, being a just God, is going to right the wrongs. That's exactly what Jesus is telling these guys. Verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. End quote. The key of knowledge is the scriptures. They were teachers of God's word, explainers of God's word. They were charged with bringing the holy writings to the people and to help them follow God's good and righteous ways. They had such an amazing job description. They were meant for good so that the people could follow God, but they've perverted it with their hypocrisy, their self-worship. And if the teachers of the Scriptures have chased after what is evil, then what hope is there for the hearers of the Word? The hearers are truly hindered. When I was reading this, I was thinking about James chapter 3, verse 1, quote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, end quote. That is a word the scribes surely would have needed to hear, for their judgment would be most strict, and I think we know the result of it. The first two woes focus on different aspects of their hypocrisy. The third woe centers on their perversion of God's word. Now let's read the last two verses. Verse 53, quote, 
As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. End quote. Needless to say, after all six woes, we got three woes to the Pharisees, three woes to the lawyers, who are also scribes, they're the same thing. Six total woes among religious leaders. Jesus did not make any friends at this dinner gathering. So here we are. Jesus has now finished handing out woes for the time being. Truly was an act of grace. Because Jesus was calling out their sin, which means he's calling out their need to repent. That's grace. That there is still time for them to turn from their hypocrisy and their self-worship to turn to the true God. I know it's easy to look at these words and say, man, Jesus is being harsh here. No, the harsh thing would be to say nothing. Because if he had said nothing, there would be zero chance they could be convicted and repent of their sin. But it was through love and grace that he spoke directly at them so that they might repent. If only they had listened. If only they had responded to the conviction they felt and repented of their sins when Jesus called them out. If only they had turned from their ways and followed after him. Instead, these men who came from the dust of the earth, they are now conspiring against the Son of God, the King of the universe. Woe unto them. We've gone through a lot of woes. But remember what we are called to. We are called to love our God above all else, and we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. We're called to love ourselves in the proper order, giving God the first fruits of our love. When that order got messed up, it becomes idolatrous and unhealthy. We're called to be the same in public as we are in private. Though we will not perfectly practice what we preach, we are called to strive for it, and there's grace for the rest. We're called to honor the scriptures, not twist them. And lastly, when our sin is called out, we're called to repent. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.